Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, What more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Every town has a dark side. This is Andrew Fitzgerald from the Every Town podcast, where every single week we dive into insane and mysterious true crime stories, most of which you've never heard of. Stories like the bizarre disappearance of Tyler Davis in Columbus, Ohio, a 29-year-old father trying to find his way back to his hotel when he disappeared and was never heard from again, and Elizabeth Shelf from Lugoff, South Carolina, who was abducted from her driveway by a madman and taken to his underground bunker in the woods. We give you all the details you're interested in hearing about without any fluff or fillers, because ain't nobody got time for that. We cover everything from psychopaths to poltergeists, so go check out the Everytown podcast, because every town, no matter how nice it may seem, has a dark side. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a... Weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Is circumstantial evidence enough to send a man away for life? On January 19th, 1931, a message was delivered to a man who, many believe, got away with murder. A piece of paper that started a decades-long whodunit. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. William Herbert Wallace was born on August 29, 1878 in Milam, Cumberland. Leaving school at the age of just 14, William took up an apprenticeship as a draper's assistant in Lancashire, and upon completion, he began working with a Manchester company who outfit the British Armed Forces as well as the Colonial, Indian, and Diplomatic Services. After five years of work, he put in for a transfer and moved to Calcutta, India, where he lived for two years before taking his brother's suggestion and moving to Shanghai in 1905. Unfortunately, his work was forced to come to an end when a persistent kidney issue resulted in both his resignation and his move back to England in 1907. Other than having his left kidney removed, much of what happened during his time back in the UK remains unknown until 1911, when, after working for the Liberal Party in Harrogate, he rose to the rank of election agent. This is where he met a woman named Julia Dennis, and in 1914, the pair were married. Though most early sources claim that Julia was the same age as her new husband, it was later learned that she, the daughter of a, quote, ruined alcoholic farmer and orphan by the age of 13, was actually 17 years older than William. 
She was also known to lie about her past and claimed her father was a veterinarian surgeon and her mother was French. When the First World War began, the position of liberal election agent of Harrogate was discontinued, and once again, William found himself out of work. Thankfully, though, with the help of his father, he was able to land a position as a collections agent with the Prudential Assurance Company in Liverpool. The couple moved there in 1915, and by the 1920s, he began supplementing his earnings by lecturing part-time in chemistry at the Liverpool Technical College. He seemed to be, by all accounts, a relatively decent man. He loved to play chess, was interested in chemistry and botany, and in 1928, he learned to play violin so he could accompany Julia, an accomplished pianist, and host what was referred to as musical evenings inside of their home. He was a man who, at the age of 52, got himself into a situation that made many wonder if he was really as decent as he seemed. On January 19, 1931, William Wallace attended a meeting of the Liverpool Central Chess Club where, while waiting to play his scheduled game, he was handed a message that he was told had been received via telephone about 25 minutes before he arrived. The message asked that he call at 25 Manlove Gardens East in Liverpool at 7.30 the following evening in order to discuss insurance with a man named R.M. Qualtro. Continuing on with his night, on January 20th, William made his way to Liverpool only to discover that the address he was given did not exist. After asking the streetcar conductor to tell him where to get off and inquiring with several citizens and a policeman for directions, after 45 minutes of searching, he decided to finally make his way back home. Though these actions seemed relatively normal for a man looking for an address, many later wondered if the whole thing was an act, a means for establishing an alibi. That's because at around 8.45 that same evening, neighbors of the Wallaces noticed an agitated William standing outside of his home. When they came to ask what was going on, he told them that he had been out for several hours and upon returning home, he found that all of the doors were sealed and locked shut. Mr. John Sharp Johnston, the neighbor, suggested that he try the door again and this time he was easily granted entrance. After murmuring to himself, it opens now, William went inside the back door and just minutes later, the Johnstons heard him yell out, come and see, she's been killed. Julia Wallace was lying in her sitting room, having been brutally beaten to death in what appeared to be, at first glance, a robbery gone horribly wrong. Upon arrival, the forensics expert determined that, due to the onset of rigor mortis, Julia's time of death was likely at or around 8 p.m., a time where William, thanks to his search for that address on the other side of the city, had an ironclad alibi. Between that, his age, his positive reputation, and his poor health, it seemed as though he was an unlikely suspect. But even though an eyewitness claimed to have seen Julia alive and well just before her husband left on his journey, police felt that if he moved fast enough, he could have committed the murder, hurried onto the streetcar, and made his way to Liverpool in enough time. A theory that they tested using a very fit young detective instead of one near the same age as William Wallace. 
After hearing a number of voluntary statements from William, investigators went to speak with the man who took the telephone message the evening of the chess meeting. They then found evidence that the telephone box used by the mysterious Mr. Qualtro to make the call that night was just 400 yards from the Wallace residence. Though the person who took the call was certain that the man on the line was not William Wallace, the circumstantial evidence against him seemed to be enough for police. And determining that he and Mr. Qualtro were one in the same, and that he could make the call, jump on a tram, and arrive at the chess club at the same time that William did, he became their prime suspect. He remained as such even after the time of death was changed to just after 6 p.m., thus creating an even smaller window of time for this, quote, frenzied crime. And the fact that, though the forensic examination revealed that the killer was likely heavily contaminated by Julia's blood, not a single soul who came into contact with William that evening saw even a speck of blood on him or on his clothing. To combat this fact, police presented a theory that the Macintosh, a waterproof coat, found underneath Julia's body, was worn by her naked husband while he committed the crime, and that he quickly changed before leaving to establish his alibi. Despite all of the evidence that pointed elsewhere, on April 22, 1931, William Wallace stood in a courtroom accused of murdering his wife. During the trial, a number of issues were made abundantly clear, like the fact that Julia's body temperature was not taken to ascertain a more specific time of death, that the crime scene was not properly preserved, that investigating officers' fingerprints were found littering the home, and items found in crime scene pictures were either moved from snapshot to snapshot or missing entirely. Also heard during the trial was the man who took the message at the chess club, who remained steadfast the caller was not, and could not have been William Wallace, and the milk boy who was certain that he spoke to Julia just moments before her husband would have had to leave to catch his tram. None of that seemed to matter, though, and William Herbert Wallace was, based purely on circumstantial evidence, found guilty after just an hour of deliberation and was sentenced to death. However, in an unprecedented move, in May of that same year, the Court of Criminal Appeals quashed the verdict on grounds that it, quote, cannot be supported having regard to the evidence. It was determined that the jury was wrong in the law, and with no concrete evidence against him, William was set free in what was the first instance in British legal history where an appeal had been allowed after re-examination of the evidence. He returned to his job in insurance, but though he had been set free, William's reputation and standing in the public's opinion was forever tarnished. Many former customers, feeling as though he was a murderer who got away with the crime, shunned him. He received death threats and hate mail, and eventually had to take a clerical job in the head offices and move to a bungalow in Merseyside. Then, on February 26, 1933, just years after this whole ordeal began, William Herbert Wallace passed away of uremia and pyelonephritis. He was buried alongside his wife and left behind diaries in which he expressed his anguish over his loss and hoped that they would be reunited in the afterlife. He also expressed his belief that the real killer was a former colleague and his growing worries that he himself might be the man's next target. 
This case has, over the decades, been the subject of a lot of speculation and is considered a classic whodunit-style mystery. Some other theories involve a junior employee at Prudential who worked alongside William, a man named Richard Gordon Perry, who allegedly was given an alibi by his fiancée for the night of Julia's murder. But when he jilted the woman, she admitted to lying to the police. A young man who would have no problem convincing Julia to let him into her home, and allegedly was seen at a local garage the night of the murder, washing off his car with a high-powered hose and wearing blood-soaked gloves. Though financial gain was a clear motive for this potential suspect, other sources over the years claim that Richard had another alibi that would have made it impossible to commit the murder, but may have just been the man who made the Qualtro calls as some sort of practical joke. While some say William was the killer, and others name completely different suspects, no other individual has ever been charged, and the murder remains officially unsolved to this day. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear a terrible thing happened on January 20th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.